everyone. So, um, Jory breaking her foot, that's Devin White, our, our associate pastor's wife, uh, happened about when I was going to bed last night, and Devin was going to preach. So, uh, I've had this morning to prepare a sermon for you. So, it's about as long as I normally use. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, if you have a Bible, open it to Ezekiel chapter 38. When Devin gets back on the horse here, he'll go back to the second half of 37, which is about God's promise in this future kingdom he's going to create. He's going to create to bring his servant David to rule over all people, including his united people, and people in addition to that who is the son of David, Jesus the Christ. We're, I'm sorry I, I spoiled that sermon for you, but that's what he's going to say. Um, and so in chapter 38, he moves on to um, also looking forward from this time to— a huge battle between God and the nations of the earth. And um, the parallel is really closely with uh, the final battle in the book of Revelation. Okay, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this. Now, I'm going to jump around a little bit, so uh, I'll tell you when and where, but I'm going to read sections instead of reading both chapters. And I'm going to read kind of fast, okay, because it's a narrative. So I'm going to start in 38 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshesh and Tubal prophesy against them, saying, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshesh and Tubal, and I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with whole, your whole army, horses, your horsemen fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all with their shields and helmets. Also Gomer, with all its troops, and Beth, Togarma, from the far north with all of its troops and many nations with you. Skip to verse 14. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in that day when my people, Israel, are living in safety, will you not notice it? You will come and from your place in the far north and you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army, you will advance against my people, Israel, like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Skip to verse 21. I will summon the sword of Gog on all the mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour out down torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur on him and on his troops, and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. Go to 39 verse 6. Or verse 5, sorry. 39 verse 5. You will fall in the open field, as I have, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and on all those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. For I will make known my holy name among the, my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned, and the nations will know that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the sovereign Lord. This is the day I have spoken of. And then those who live in the towns of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them. The small and large shields and the bows and arrows and the war clubs and spears, for seven years they will use them for fuel. They will not need to gather wood from the field or cut it in the forest because they will use the weapons for fuel. And they will plunder those who plundered them and loot those 
who looted them, declares the Lord. On that day, I will give Gog a burial place in Israel. In the valley of those who travel east toward the sea, it will block the way of travelers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. And so it will be called the Valley of Hamon Gog. Go to verse 21. I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. For from the, that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. And the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed them over to the enemies, and they all fell by the sword. And I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their offenses, and I hid my face from them. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will now bring Jacob back from captivity and will have compassion on all the people of Israel, and I will be zealous for my holy name. They will forget their shame and all the unfaithfulness they showed toward me when they lived in safety in the land with no one to make them afraid. And when I have brought them back from the nations and have gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will show myself holy through them in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. All right. For those of you who thought that the positive promissory sections of Ezekiel would be more positive than the negative sections. I'm sorry to read these chapters to you. Um, so today is the Super Bowl, and since the Packers aren't in it, I asked my family at dinner last night who they were going to cheer for, and one of my daughters said, well, I'm going to cheer for the Bengals because if they win, their quarterback has won like a Heisman, a national championship, and a Super Bowl. Nobody's ever done that. And then my, one of my kids, one of my, my youngest kid, piped up and said, no, dad and I, we're going to cheer for the Rams because their quarterback had to play for the Lions all those years. <laughs> I'm so proud of her. <laughs> one of the things that's compelling, one of the reasons why so many people watch the Super Bowl, even if they don't even watch the season and they have no stake in the teams that play, you would think this, the Super Bowl would be the lowest watched football game at all, like, it's like, who cares? Only the people who care about the Rams and the Bengals, right? No, but like, like no, because all of us got caught up who care about football at all. Got caught up in the story of the whole season. Even when our team got knocked out, we're now like, well, who's going to win? Well, is it going to be the, the people who beat our team? Is it going to be our league? Is it going to be our group? Is it going to be our, or theirs? Or what's going to happen, right? And you're kind of like, okay, this is also like the most trivial thing you could possibly imagine, sports. You know what I mean? It's like, why do we watch people play sports? Sports are to be played, right? And like, it's better to, it would be better, you've heard me say this, it'd be better if we like had, we all went and cheered for our church's softball team. Because they're ours, right? They're ours. It'd be just as exciting as watching this. These are people we don't know at all. You know what I mean? God bless them, but we don't know who they are, right? So, um, but the reason for that is, is that um, there is both a store, a narrative story, and there's a, and there, there's a symbolism of being part of a group in a, in a bigger story than ourselves that every human being is drawn to. That's why everybody who puts anything on TV knows that. Anybody who writes any story, even, even people who write little short stories, anybody who publishes anything anywhere knows something about, like, people have to be drawn into what? Drawn into what? Well, a story that has a historiography to it. Something happened that you're a part of, and a symbol. Like, it somehow symbolizes what your life means, right? And so people get caught up in the football thing if they care about football at all. And it's one of the reasons why when Napoleon was trying to take over all of Europe and the whole world, 
he talked about the importance of ideology, which is just French for ideology, which means like this, this set, this group of ideas big enough to like supplant religion, supplant anything else to be like, we the French should own the world because we, I don't know, cook ducks the best or something. Like it's like, and, and this moved into Marx and Engels and then Lenin. I, I was looking at this picture of Marx, Engels, Lenin, and I was afraid that maybe Lenin killed all those people because he, he had beard envy of Marx and, and Engels and just couldn't do it, you know, and he just got angry. But I think it was probably more than that. Um, but th there was this idea that like communism had this idea like there's a certain kind of consciousness everybody has to have. Like for example, when there, a lot of people say things today that other people disagree with, especially if they're said on the, on the political or academic left, people say, oh, that's Marxism. That's Marxism. And, and then the people who say it, they're like, it's not Marxism. And then the, the one group goes, that's Marxism. The other group, have you, ever, have you heard this? Like on the news and on blogs, that's not Marxism. That's Marxism. That's not Marxism. That's Marxism. That's not Marxism. That's Marxism. You know, it's just, and you're like, Ugh. and the thing is, it is Marxism and it's not Marxism. That's why nobody can agree. The, the reason why people say it's Marxism and they're right is because it's an ideology. It's an, it's an ideology, right? It's like our ducks are better. You know what I mean? It's like, like, oh, like there's this story I'm trying to tell everybody to get them all to believe so that they'll be caught up into the historiography and the meaning of it. They'll buy into the symbolism of it and they'll act as though they believe this story that I'm telling. Right? Whether that's critical race theory or white nationalism or the Rams should win. Like, there's all kinds of different stories you can tell. It's kind of like, you, I want to catch everybody up into a kind of consciousness so that we can all be on the same team and everybody will agree and everybody will march in lockstep and everybody will believe the same enough to get something done so that we can bring about some great thing. Right? And in one sense, I mean, the way Marx and Engels did it was really disgusting. And their concept of consciousness may or may not be right, but it is fundamentally human. Every human being, in order to figure out really who they are, is in this reciprocating relationship with everything around them. There is no person who knows who they are completely irrespective of everything and everybody else. You leave somebody on an island alone long enough and they go crazy. They don't become deeper. Right? And, and that doesn't mean we're not individuals and that that doesn't matter. What it means is, is that we need to understand what story we're being caught up in. And part of the purpose of these chapters is God wants his covenant people, whether it's 2,500 years ago when this was written, whether it was 2,000 years ago when Revelation was written, whether it's right now, whether it's people 100 years from now, he wants his people to understand what story they're a part of. The historiography of that story, the symbolism of that story, so they know where they are right now. And he wants them to understand that relative to a bunch of things. In this case— his willingness to judge and destroy in the last event those who will not turn to him and those who will pick a fight with him. Particularly in the context here, it is what you might call the violent. If you read these two chapters carefully this afternoon or later this week or something like that, what you'll find is, is that the people who are destroyed in this story are many nations of people. But it's not all the nations. It's not all the people. It is all the violent from all nations that gather themselves together and choose to go attack God's people because of their peace and their prosperity. He says, what will happen is I'm going to bring my people back into my land and I'm going to give them peace like they had before. But instead of what they did before, like sinning the heck out of the land and defiling it, they will actually have new hearts and they're going to follow me. And when they do that, they're going to have peace. And when they have peace and they love each other and they cooperate with each other and they can work with each other and then the blessed land I give them, it will produce a beautiful prosperity. And then he says to these people, Tubal, Menesh, 
dog had made God, won't you notice it in those days? Won't you see it with a kind of jealousy? Won't you say, man, I can just go take all of that. They don't have any weapons. They don't have any walls. They're not ready for this. They can't fight us. They might have a good, like, oxen breeding program, but they don't have swords like these. We're going to come with all our big shields and our small shields. And we're going to whoop their butts. And we're going to take everything. Right? And so you can see this in the decline of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel says, it always goes like this. Idolatry, right? Wickedness, injustice, violence. And so that final state of human degradation, right? The pride and power that I will just go take it. All these, all these, this interesting about Revelation is you know there's this judgment coming at the end. You know God will ultimately judge the wicked. And then yet at the very end of the, at the book, Jesus doesn't come back and pick a fight with everybody who didn't believe in him. They all pick a fight with him. Like, sometimes I wonder at this concept of the, like, quote, millennial kingdom, that somehow God will bring our, his own reign into the earth in such a way as that he will reign amidst the ungodly nations. For some reason, you're like, well, what's that reason? Why would he do that? Well, maybe it's because he wants to show that all along we could have followed him. And so all the ways that we didn't really were our choice. It really was possible. We just wouldn't do it. Maybe it's because, though, even in the final battle when he'll come and judge all of the earth and bring his total judgment, he's not going to pick that fight. He's going to finish that fight, but he's not going to pick it. He won't go get the wicked. He will destroy them when they come to him to try to kill everything he's made. Right? And I'm not saying that is the reason. I don't know the reason. That sounds plausible given the way he's talked about this. That, that is that God will divinely destroy the violent to display his glory to the nations. As he said in the chapters before this, he will also display his gracious life in order to display himself to the nations. And so you and I have to both historically and symbolically find ourselves in the story if you're a believer. There's a sense, this is, when he tells this, this is the future, there's two places in the passage where he says, you've heard it, my prophets say of old, that a day was coming when I would defeat this multifaceted enemy. He said, let me tell you about it more specifically now. And so he gives this much more specific prophecy in these two chapters about it. And then he says, this is coming and now I've told you more about it. So he's still saying, look, this is still future, right? I don't know how far future. It's either 1,500 years future or further than that. And, and I don't know, but and these people didn't know. They died before this happened. But what he wanted them to do is to say, okay, in the flow of the history of God, ultimately he's going to bring about Ezekiel 37 through 48, which means he is going to create a new heart in us. He's going to raise up the dead dry bones from the valley, chapter 37. He's going to put a new King David over a united people who is the true king we've been waiting for all along. And then ultimately, how will we then relate to the nations when that happens? What will happen? And the answer is what you would think. The nations will look upon that beauty and they won't be able to stand it. Gog, that is the principal head of injustice and violence, jealousy and pride, will not be able to stand that there's a land that isn't filled with idolatry, that doesn't pursue their good by means of wickedness, that doesn't seek to flourish on the basis of stealing from others and injustice, and that doesn't kill each other in showing that they're better than everybody else, right? They're, they're, there's this beauty of the prosperity of peace, and he, he will not be able to stand it, either that it exists and shows him for what he really is, or that they have a wealth produced by that that he can't produce in all his power. And he will come. He will gather all the nations and say, let's go take it all. And he will come. And what will happen? 
And God says, when that happens, when he picks a fight with me, I will obliterate him. And just like I will show myself holy to all the nations by the beauty of what I will make from new hearts, I will also display myself to the nations by obliterating the heart and followers of violence in the earth in this battle. And I will build a second mountain. There will be a mountain of God on which there will be a temple in the holy city, and I will build a heap of the dead bodies of the nations of Gog that anybody who goes to the Mediterranean, anybody who travels throughout the whole east of the earth, and goes through the Mediterranean, they will have to go, they will have to stop and go on the road that goes around the pile of bodies stacked up to the heavens that will take seven months for all the people of Israel to pile up and bury as a monument to how God will end violence. How does that make you feel? What we're supposed to recognize if we believe that we belong to the Lord is that whatever is happening in our lives relative to idolatry, wickedness, injustice, and violence, we are part of a story in which God is bringing to an end those things. The very last is his destruction of those who will never give them up. All of the way along, everything between this day and that, everything that has gone back all the way to the beginning of his story, is to persuade men and women to give it up. To give up their idolatry for faith. Right? To give up their wickedness to pursue righteousness in faith. To give up their injustice to pursue justice because they're pursuing righteousness in faith. And to give up their violence because they're called to peace. Because that is the result of seeking justice. Because you're pursuing righteousness out of faith. And all of his story is through all these different means to persuade men and women throughout all nations who speak all languages of all ethnicities in all times to turn from these four harbingers of eternal death to the life of trusting and believing him and being his. And in the end, those who irrevocably choose to be men and women of violence, he will destroy, and he will display his goodness and his glory and his great name to all the nations in both ways. He will do it by showing the beauty of life in worship and righteousness and justice and peace, and he will show it by destroying those who have irre irrevocably decided to be counted ultimately with idolatry, wickedness, injustice, and violence. He will display his beauty in both ways. And we are part of that history. And our part of that history is not to destroy those who seem now bent on the four harbingers of death and damnation, but to be the people who beautify the four virtues of the beauty of the life of God and to persuade and invite and offend by our existence those who have still chosen the other four. Do you understand? That's our story. That's what we're part of. That's what Jesus came to do, and that is the commission he gave his church. Go to all nations and make disciples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the God, rather than their idolatries, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to believe in the benevolent, loving, caring, just, righteous, glorious God, and then teach them to obey everything I've commanded. That is to apply in love all these truths as God's people baptized in his name. We belong to him 
into pursuing righteousness. Therefore, in all our relationships, justice, and so as to produce the peace of God from our own hearts, knowing that we are reconciled with God through his Christ to all people around us, through, to, as like it says in Romans 12, to all, every extent it depends on you to live at peace with everybody. Pray for all those in governmental authority, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, so that you might live peaceful and godly lives in the midst of them, whatever they're doing. We're in that history, and we are the embodiment of that symbolism in our chapter. I, listen, I don't know. I do not know if we're in one of the boring middle chapters or in one of the hot climactic chapters of this book. Okay, I don't know. I don't know. If this passage was fulfilled as preterists think in the first crusade, then, and then in the millennium is a thousand years, then Jesus is coming back in the next 30 years. Now, I doubt that. But it's kind of a sexy interpretation. Who knows? We might be in the climactic chapter. Of course, every, every Christian always has thought that, right? I mean, there were books during the Civil War, like, this is the end. And if you were in America at that time, you probably would have thought so, right? And then it, it wasn't. Can you imagine what people actually thought during the Crusades? They must have thought that was the end. Or communism. Like, I'm, I'm old enough to have been terrified by nuclear weapons and communism, okay? Like, I'm still probably traumatized by, like, all the times— like all the movies they made of nuclear weapons killing everybody and everybody like having their skin falling off from like radiation sickness and all that. I don't who, Who's that age? Gen Xers. We're just compl always completely forgotten, right? Okay, and older, right? So, or I'm younger. You're probably only 35. Okay, so, um, right? Everybody thinks they're going to be in the climactic chapter and nobody has been, right? So, who, it does, see, here's the thing. It doesn't matter. Because if you understand the, his, the, the historical story, how it's playing out, the— the symbolic truth of what we are in the story is always the same. It's always the same. To be like Christ and to be a people of faith in the benevolent, truthful God that is, who pursue righteousness, who in doing so seek justice, and seek to pursue and create and be peacemakers. That's what we're doing. That's what we've always been doing. That's what they were called to do. That's what people in the day of Revelation were called to do. That's what we are commissioned as a church to do. That's what we've always been doing. That's what we're supposed to do. Well, always been doing, that's questionable. But that's what we've always been supposed to be doing. Okay. All right. Second thing is this, that God will display his glory through both blessing and destruction. I've already said something about that. But one of the ways he does this is that he makes really clear that his desire, his main desire, is to demonstrate his glory, to make his name known. One of the things to remember is all through the book of Ezekiel, God says like 56 times, so that they will know I'm the Lord. God's overarching intention in all of his self-revelation is so that all of the peoples of the earth will know the Lord. Even in the most nationalistic moment of Israel's history, when they built the first temple, and Solomon, their great king, is praying over their temple, where they finally have their land, and it's theirs. He prays over it in 1 Chronicles, and he says, God, bless us. And then he says, and then for all the peoples of the earth, when they look to the, towards this temple, I pray that they would see your righteousness, and that some of them would come to it, and that they would pray to you, and that you would hear them, and that they would know that you are the Lord. Right? That was— Solomon in his good days, before the bad days, before maybe his last good days. Right? And God was very pleased with that prayer and filled the temple with the smoke of his presence that people couldn't even bear. Because he's like, somebody finally got it right. 
And so you can see this in both ways, right? In the first way, you can see God saying, what I want to do is I want to show people who I am by blessing those who pursue faith, righteousness, justice, and peace. Right? And so he says in—I'm oh, sorry. Let's do the—well, now I've started. Let's do it that way. Right? He says, he says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's, it's not for your sake, O Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. When you have gone—which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. See, when he talks about the new birth, that he will create a people, that he will put— a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. He'll, he'll, he'll pour his spirit out into their lives. He'll give them the desire to do what's good and beautiful and just, right? He says, I'm not actually doing it for you who are going to receive it, even. Because nobody who receives it deserves it. That's not the point. You don't get it because you deserve it. You receive it as a means of God displaying it. You get it because you need it. And the responsibility that you have in it is just to display it. So it's by grace. God gives it to you because you need it, and then you display it because other people need it. It has nothing to do with deserves. Do you understand? It has everything to do with what you need, but also what all of the peoples of the whole earth need. Which is why not just our reception of it, but our display of it is what God calls faith. So he says, going on, the name you have profaned among, among them, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord. And I, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. You see the argument there? He's saying, the nations are going to know that I'm holy and that I exist and that what I do is real. And I'm going to show it to them through you. They're going to see that I'm different. I'm holy. I'm different than anything they've ever experienced. I'm better than everything they've ever experienced. And I'm more good. My more beauty is something they've never experienced. And that holiness they're going to experience through you through this thing that you don't deserve and I'm not even doing for your sake. I'm doing it for them. I, my, my overarching goal is that everybody knows this. And so you are a conduit to that, that everybody would know what I'm really like. Okay, do you hear that for you right now? This is, this is ex symbolically exactly the same for us. We have not received Christ and his salvation and his new heart and his spirit for us. We didn't receive it because we deserved it. We didn't do it for us. He did it so all the nations would know. And so that through us, redemption could come to all people in all ways. It's one of the reasons why you can't, you can't even really—when people say you can't even think of salvation individualistically. That's true. You can think of salvation individually, right? You must receive Christ. You must put your trust in Him. You must be saved. But you are a flowing conduit. It comes to you. You're changed. It flows to others. There's this fundamental social dynamic because God's revelation is flowing through the new birth to others. Do you understand? That's why we have to be, sometimes we call it a missions church. Why do we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year sending people across linguistic and ethnic lines to all kinds of different places in the, in the earth to share Christ by whatever means possible? It's because we, we believe that this commission, there were conduits, senders, and givers of this truth, that God is showing himself, making himself known to all nations positively, because it doesn't do the nations much good for them to find out negatively. You know what I mean? It does them much more good when they find out through people who actually look like the Lord. The problem is, is there have been so few of those humans in history. 
even among people who have the name of God written on their shirt, so to speak. Which I'll get to in just a minute. But you can see that this is true negatively as well, right? So there is the destruction of those who are the negative four believers. The, the, the people who believe and are saved, are trying to save themselves in their idolatry, their wickedness, their injustice, and their violence. He says, I will execute judgment upon them with plague and bloodshed. I will pour out torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness in my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations, and then they will know that I am the Lord. So you see, when, when the violent come against his people, and he destroys them in this act, right? Not all the nations are there, but all the nations hear about it. They all see it. They see this complete destruction. They see God defending his people and him showing his holiness. But the cost of that, right? Think about that. The cost of that is incredible because now these, this horde of people who are all human beings made in God's image, no matter how far they've been damned in the acceptance of violence in the depth of their heart, no matter how seared their conscience is, that never changes the fact that they are made in God's image, that they are infinitely valuable, that they are important to God, that they, at least in a certain kind of way, their life could have been otherwise. And they are then lost to us and to their Creator. And that is a horrible tragedy. And yet that was a, a cost, he says here, of him showing his name to be great and holy among the nations, so that all the other peoples who didn't come to that battle found out that there is a God in Israel. And he will show his glory that way, if necessary. Because God is very consistent that he is going to show his glory to all peoples. Right? And one of the things I think we need to make some peace with is how, like, how does he do that? And like, is it inconsistent? For, for example, one of the things that I've, I've talked to some, pe some people about is, they, is they've said, Nick, do you think that the coronavirus is a judgment of God? Like on the whole world. Right? And I'm like, like, I don't, I don't say, I normally don't say stuff like that. I mean, sometimes I think, on that question, the best pastoral response is, well, if the shoe fits. <laughs> you know, like when people say, because people say all the time, like in personal situations, somebody's like, you know, all this bad stuff is happening in my life. Do you think God is judging me? And people go, no. <laughs> no. Right? And like anything that could be said by a non-believing friend after their third martini, just be careful. You know what I mean? Like, if, if like, your, your hypothetical—maybe you don't even have a friend like this, but your, like, hypothetical girlfriend who's, like, had a few drinks, and, like, she just knows that she's there on Thursday night just to support you. Like, that's—the truth be damned. The whole point is to make you feel better because your life is hard. She's, no. When people say stuff like that, just—okay, there is a place for that friendship, okay? And, and I found in recent years there's a place for that parent. But it's also not true. <laughs> You know? I mean, the Bible could not be clearer that God does discipline his people, that there are many things that happen temporally that are judgments of God, and that it happens in New Testament times like ours, and like it could be, right? And so my response is usually, well, even if it isn't the judgment of God, but it is clearly related in your life to something you know dis displeases him, then if you use something that isn't his discipline to still get the picture on and move in the right direction, that's still productive and redemptive for you. So use that. I mean, that's why Hebrews 13, I think, says, 
receive all hardship as discipline. It doesn't say all hardship is discipline. It just says you should receive it all that way. There's some way in which this hardship, God is going to use it to grow you, make you stronger, make you better, teach you some truth. And if you receive it like God is going to use it to take you somewhere good, God will use it to take you somewhere good. Because if you have the opposite attitude, if you receive all hardship is being put upon by a God who doesn't really care, then every hardship will destroy your faith, tear it down, make you worse. Right? You don't actually have to know God's intention in it. Because God's will towards his vindication is so consistent. Right? You don't have to know the dynamics of the specifics. Sometimes you'll know. Sometimes he'll show it to you. Sometimes you'll, you'll just know intuitionally. Sometimes he might reveal it to you even prophetically. But like, that's not— what we have to normally do. And so, but people still struggle. They're like, Nick, but it, doesn't it feel sometimes like we don't know what God is doing? Like we, the Bible talks a lot about God's blessing. And I know we don't talk about that much because we don't want non-Christians to feel like we're all triumphalistic and all we want is blessing. And, and our faith is only just another way where we want God to do good stuff for us. And it's just totemism. And we're just like ancient, like cow sacrificers or something. Like I get that we're not, but the Bible is, isn't, isn't the Bible full of God talking about wanting to bless his people and loving his people and wanting to bless them like everywhere? And it, and it, it is. It's like really full of that. The Bible is really full of that. And they're like, well, then why does that seem to be happening to me? Right? Or people are like, God judges in the Bible? Like, I, I mean, I feel like there aren't super decisive judgments happening. Like what's going on? And I, I think that that's a, I think that's actually a really good and important question especially as you read the book of Ezekiel. Because on one level, it's really evident that God does act to destroy the irreparably and unrepentantly violent. Right? So the, the chapters on the king of Tyre are those the irreparably and unrepentantly proud and materialistic. The king of Tyre is this object of splendor and pride and wealth. And he's a- achieved his wealth not by enriching others, but by taking for himself and thinking of himself as a god. Right? And God says, I will tear that down and destroy it for my name's sake, right? But the prince of Egypt, that is Pharaoh, God laments over him for like two or three chapters about how he's going to break both of his arms and neither one is going to be able to hold a sword. And ultimately he's going to go down to the grave of the uncircumcised violent who brought terror on the earth. And in chapter 32, he goes through all these kings and princes. He just like walks through. And the, this, these princes are there. And these kings and princes are there. And these, and he's talking about like Hades or Sheol. This like this great void of suffering and hopelessness and weakness where all the princes of the earth who love violence go when he destroys them and breaks them down. And they go to a place where all the victims go. They go among the slain because they triumphed over the slain. They triumphed over the weak. And so they fall ultimately among all the dead, weak, and slain. And that's where they will be. And God doesn't say it triumphantly. Both of those sets of chapters are laments. He's— He is both sad to do it to them, but resolved to do it because the world must know the purpose and meaning of his name, right? And then then also there's his blessing, right? He he does. He blesses. He's like, look, I'm going to bless you guys incredibly. When I do this work in you, I'm going to bless you so much that the nations of the earth are going to be so angered by it that they're going to attack you. It's going to be a lot of blessing, right? And and then we're like, well, what— why don't we feel like that's us, like inflation rates and stuff, right? And the answer is, 
Because the vast majority of humanity lives in the stupid middle between utterly damnable and to be destroyed and actually doing what God says and so to be blessed. Why were the people of Israel so confused about what God would and wouldn't do for them? Well, because God was so confused about what they would or wouldn't do for him. <laughs> right? Like, like it, it actually says in some of these chapters, he's like, listen, I, I, you, you are the one who got me stuck because like I wanted to bless you and show the nations that I love my people to show them I was a loving God so that they would be drawn to me. The problem was you were so wicked that if I blessed you, all the nations would look at you and be like, their God is terrible. So like, I, I, if I blessed you, I, my name was damned. And if I killed you, my name was damned because they either say there's no God in Israel to save these people or he killed his own people. Which is what—remember, that's what Moses says. When the people come out of Egypt and they start worshiping a golden calf, like, God's like, I'm, I'm going to kill these people. And, and Moses goes, yeah, okay, you can kill them, and they kind of deserve it. But here's the thing. If you do that, the whole nation of Egypt is going to say, you brought them out here to kill them. Because they don't know about the golden calf. The nations are stupid. They don't actually know what's happening among your people. They're just watching from the outside and like interpreting kind of blandly based on what they think they're seeing. And so if you destroy your people, and they surely deserve it, and I don't even like them, but like if you kill them, everybody's going to be like, God doesn't care about his people. So think about this. Like, you're a Christian in America. You're part of the church in America. Are you doing well? Are you living blessed? Is the church in America blessed? Is God lifting up his people and blessing us? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I look around and I'm like, well, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot of things I think in my life are like a beautiful blessing. I look at other people I know who are believers and trying to serve the Lord, and I see ways in which God is both blessing them and allowing them to suffer. And I look at the church in America, and it, you wouldn't look as a, as a nation outsider and go, oh, God is blessing his people. Right? You might think God is disciplining them and sending them into some kind of exile. Right? And, and the reason God says he, he behaves this way in the book of Ezekiel is if we won't figure out who we are, if we don't actually live free from idolatry and truly in faith in his Christ, and if we don't really pursue righteousness with all we are and seek to live utterly free of wickedness in all of its forms in our lives, as he shows it to us, and if because of that we don't actually live beyond ourselves— to people around us, at least in giving them their due, that is justice, rather than injustice, and seek to not participate in injustice however we can, and to participate in justice however we can, and then to eschew violence and how it's used wrongly in most ways to encourage and enforce injustice and wickedness and idolatry, rather than to break it up if we are not so evidently that, that if God blesses us, the nations will know what he's like, he can't bless us. God is good. He is honest and truthful. His number one goal is that the nations would know that he is the Lord. Every action that God takes, in every case, on every level, in every way, is to display to the nations that he is God. And so every act that he takes is to that end. What does that mean for us? How are we historically embedded in that and symbolically embedded in it? If we were like Jesus, the nations would know we were blessed. The nations might also know that we were 
laid open for suffering like Jesus. And it would somehow be both. Did you notice that the same apostles who could heal people's blindness got murdered? Did you notice that? We would be like that. We'd still get murdered. We'd still get kicked out of our jobs. We'd still get our names besmirched in the community. But there would be a glory on us that, that really couldn't be denied. And the nations would know it. They would say, man, those, man, those people who wear the name of God, if they're for real, then God would be like this. And God would get their attention. He wants to get the attention of the nations who if they looked at the people he blessed, they would say, oh, God is like that. I, I just think that, I just think that sometimes we're so little like that. That we're caught up in all the same stupid stuff. We've got to have all this crap. And we have to have people like us. And we have to make sure we like move up in the jobs and stuff. And so we won't tell the truth or work for reform. Or, or we, we get sucked up in some other person's religious campaign of this policy or that thing. Or, and we just don't have the the individuality. We don't have the clarity of conscience. We don't have the personal strength to just be like, I'm not that. I'll go with you this far, as far as I think Jesus goes, and then no farther. And if you're going to be my friend until then, and then you're going to try to hit me over the head with a baseball bat after that, so be it. Right? I'm going to obey God and not men. Every time. Every single time, I'm going to obey God and not men. Swim. And then there's like a thousand of us like that. And it's like, that's really interesting. And I think it's one of the reasons why I don't preach, hey, go out and evangelize your friends, co-workers, and family members every week. And I don't believe that if we're nice, people will ask about our faith either. I just get so sick and tired of hearing people say that. You know what, if we're just really nice people and we're just really kind to our neighbors and stuff, people will ask us about our God. Yeah, yeah probably not. Probably not. Probably not. Um, God is not after nice people. He is after people who live in the fruit of kindness towards all. That's not the same thing. But he is looking for people who are filled with holiness. And that holiness, friends, is possible. And if you have some besetting sin, you're like, well, not me, because I'm like stuck in these besetting sins and I just can't get free of them. You know what? I want to cuss to like help you understand like how, how much intensely I think— I don't—I'm don't, looking for in super intense words. Okay, like, I don't, I don't care if in some thing in your life you don't feel like you can do better. Just put that on a back burner and just be like, God, I don't know how to get free of this. Help me do all these other things beautifully. And then we'll keep working on that. And then turn to people for help for that thing. But like, just because you, you just like, you just can't keep a job doesn't mean that you can't be profoundly kind and loving towards others and hospitable. It doesn't mean you can't do the rest of the beauty of the gospel. Right? Like, I, I know that there's, there's probably piles of people just in this room right now. They're just like, they just can't get free of, like, pornography addictions. Okay, listen. Who cares? Okay? Like, it matters. It totally matters. But listen, it's not all that matters. You matter more than that, and you are more than that, and you do more than that, and you could care about more than that, and God will help you get progressively free of that, and you should fight it and try to kill it with all forthrightness. But don't let that bondage break your back to all the good works God has made you to do. Amen. You know? 
You can do beautiful things as a sucky person. And some of us are driving very broken machines because we've been ritually abused by this culture, okay? And we can still do amazing things even as we grow in healing. One of the—it's the last thing I'll share. Um, I've prayed 560 versions of this prayer in my life, over my family, over this church, over our staff, over you, each of you, sometimes personally, some, always you corporately, over our elders, over our deacons, over our city, over our— and it's always some version of this. God, please make me, John, High Point Church, the sort of thing that you can bless, the sort of person you can bless. Lead me to be someone that tells the truth by how I live. Like, I am an expression of the truth about you. So that through me, you can be pleased yourself. I want you to enjoy it, God. You can reveal yourself to the nations and everybody around me, my neighbors, my enemies, and you can bless me. Make me the kind of person, when I first got here, my first Sunday, my first week, I got the paperwork that we were $40,000 in the red, like real dollars, right? And I knew that wasn't going to last, and, and the person that showed me was like, this will be fine, but just like, you need to know where we are. And so the, the first thing I started doing financially for our church, I didn't ask for more money. I didn't do a capital campaign. I didn't start a stewardship, whatever. I, we went to the prayer meeting as a staff, and I said, here's what we're going to pray. God, help High Point Church become the kind of church that you would want to give money to. Just help, I, like, whatever that is. I don't care about the money. What sort of church would we be? And then you would be like, oh, I want them to have more money. <laughs> Just, uh, give them more money. Angels, find somebody to go to that church and give them more money. Because that I want more of, right? And I just focused on that for the first, like, three years. We didn't do hardly anything related to finances. All I did was pray that with the staff, talk about it with the staff, and then just try to do it. And I prayed that for you, and I prayed that for our church, and I prayed that for my family, and I prayed for myself. I want to be blessed. Listen, I, I, don't, I don't care. I, I, I don't want my life to be bad. I mean, all things being equal, I'd rather be good rather than bad. And anything that God wants to give me and has promised to give me, I'm not going to engage in the false and stupid humility that I don't want it, okay? Like, I, like I've heard that kind of talking. Like, no, listen, if God says, I want to bless you, then who are you to be like, well, I'm too humble for that? No, you're not. You're an arrogant prig. <laughs> Open your hands wide to what God freely gives, knowing that Jesus is going to say to you, freely you have received, freely give. You'll receive love, you'll give love. You'll receive help, you'll give help. You'll receive hospitality, you'll give hospitality. You'll receive belonging, you'll give belonging. You'll receive freely, you'll give freely. Because it's more blessed to give than receive. It is 100% true that God says in this passage, he says, when I do this, you'll forget your shame. Right? All the way through the book, he's like, listen, I want to make you cognizant of your shame because it's the only way you'll find a moral groundedness. But then he doesn't want that shame to destroy us. He says, when this happens, I, you, will, you will forget your shame. But you still have to be inspired both by the gracious giving of God to forget your shame and the fact that you will remember your shame and open your mouth no more. Like at one level, you have to have the moral seriousness of knowing that we have to choose who we're going to be. That matters. And we have to know that every way you have failed, every way, Jesus has performed perfectly for you and died on the cross for every failure, for every mistake, for every bad-hearted, 
wrong-headed thing, he has performed it perfectly, both to allow you to have the freedom to act forward and to know that God is with you in every step that you take towards him. And that he's with you even when you spend decades resolutely denying him. He's with you. He's always coaxing all of the nations, every person, even those who he laments over because right now they're committed to violence. Even the Pharaoh, even Pharaoh who's like, who can I kill? He's like, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Turn back. Even you violent, turn back and I will redeem you. God, um, we pray that as we, as we sing and as we think and as we pray a little bit, that you would, you would just, you'd work in us in such a way that we would be drawn to love you for all that you show about yourself. The beauty of the new birth, the beauty of the destruction of the final violent, your passion to display your name to all the nations and all peoples, that you love and are seeking to win over our enemies, and that our enemies right now are praying. Some of our enemies that you've won over are praying for us because you made them. You are noble in all these things. You are just, and you are honorable, and you long to bless us. So God, make us the sort of people, make us the sort of church, make us the sort of believers that you can bless. Because our lives and our life together is the truth displayed. And so by blessing us, you display yourself. And people know the truth about you. And make it such that you would be pleased. That we would be honorable sacrifices to you. And that we would take pleasure in it. You would take pleasure in it. You would be able to bless us. And that the nations would be able to see you for who you really are. From our closest neighbor to the most distant peoples. And help us to do it out of joy, out of, a, out of knowledge that you're with us, that we're following Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that all of our failures have been died for, that even our besetting sins can be overwon by your presence with us, that you have given us the first fruits of a new heart with the power of the Spirit, even now, and that you have put the new King David over us, who stands over us spiritually now as our great high priest. And that we cannot, we cannot fail in faith in you. And you will lead us into righteousness and into justice and into peace. Give us the courage, God, to believe, to really believe, and where we know we have deviated from it, to repent. I pray that as we sing these songs, people in this room would be letting things go, would be turning them loose. Every idolatry, every known wickedness or sin, every known injustice they've perpetrated on another, and every violence. And they would turn to you and seek to be a beacon of who you are in the world. And together with your church, in Jesus' name.